going to continue our series this morning in Philippians. And this morning we're going to consider one of the most beautiful, amazing passages in all of Scripture. Uh, the Christ hymn as it's known. Uh, this amazing picture, depiction, story, uh, example of Christ Jesus our Lord. So please look with me at uh, Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to read for us beginning in verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would receive all the glory and all the honor. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, who so loved the world that he did not count his equality with you, uh, something should be held on to selfishly, but humbled himself, that we might be saved. May he receive all the glory, honor, and praise this morning. May my words be holy and pleasing in your sight. Use them, Spirit, to work in our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And well, last week we considered the imperative of Christian unity, uh, of being in, in full accord and of one mind. And the reasons uh, for this we saw were in the, the perfect Trinitarian love and unity that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the encouragement of Christ, uh, through the love of, of, of God our Father, the participation or fellowship in the Spirit. All these things are true. And because all that's true, we should be striving for unity. We should be seeking to have that same kind of love that exists within uh, the Godhead itself. That we should seek the good of others before ourselves. All that is true. And so uh, Paul, he, he summarizes uh, this call to action in verse 4. Let each of you not only uh, look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the way then, and one of the reasons why we should do this, is because of the example of Christ. And that's what Paul brings us to this morning in our passage. Have this mind among yourselves, verse 5, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is the message this morning. This is the supreme example of Christ. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. This is the person and work of Jesus. This is his life, his ministry, his death, his redemption that was accomplished. The beauty and the glory of all of it summarized so perfectly in these God-inspired words. These words that we can behold, we can, we can marvel at. We can submit under and consider the impact in our lives. 
This is the story of Christ the King. And this story is told in, in three parts. First, we'll see the pre-existent glory of this king. And then we'll see how this king humbles himself, the humiliation of this king. And then finally, the third part, this exaltation of the king. This is the story of Jesus, the supreme example of Christ. And it's the example we must follow. Because everything that Paul said is true. Everything that Paul's also already talked about is true. And he's been leading us now to this point because this is what Christ has done for us. And because we know as his followers, as his servants, the servant is not above the master. So this must be how our lives look as well. That's the logic of the text. So let's consider then this example of Christ. The three parts of this story. And the first Part, the first thing we'll see is the pre-existing glory of the king. That's where the first act, the first part of the story begins. It starts, it starts before time. It starts outside of time. Before God had created the world. Before he created time itself. This first part of the story in verse 6, we're given this picture of the eternal relationship between Father and Son. And we're told two profound truths about Christ Jesus, even before he was given that name, Jesus. This is his, his origin story, if you will. This is, this is before his earthly ministry, before he was born. This is the story that begins in eternity past. And we're told these two truths, we're told these two things, that he was in the form of God, and that he was equal to God. And we need to consider both of these descriptions and what they mean. Uh, giving us this picture of his, his uh, eternal glory uh, of this king that has always existed. So the first thing we're told about Christ Jesus is that he was in the form of God. Now here's the first word that needs our attention. This is the first of, of several words in this passage that we need to consider. This word form, it, it carries uh, with it the idea of, of having a certain appearance or a, a visible display of something or someone. And so it's somewhat similar then to uh, the idea of, of uh, what Paul means here to, to what we understand Adam and Eve and how they were created. They're created uh, in the image of God. And so all of us, we bear the image of God. And this is true of Jesus himself. And we know this, and Paul will say the same thing, that he is the image of the invisible God, he'll say in Colossians. But Paul does not use the word image here, he uses this word form. And so it's not enough to simply say that Christ is, is similar to God in form, or that he images God, though he certainly does, but that he is of the very same Nature and essence of God. And this is the genius and the beauty of Scripture. Scripture in, in its brevity, in these, these uh, just few verses, even in this one verse, to capture so much uh, of, of our theology and our understanding of who Christ is. 
And using the form, uh, the word uh, form here, Paul is able to simultaneously emphasize both of these aspects. That Christ Jesus is God. That is, He is of the same nature as God. And that He is also the visible display of God. John's Gospel is, is so wonderful uh, about uh, explaining these, uh, these difficult concepts to us. But he, he uh, says it so wonderfully, John 14, 9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so do you want to know who God is? Do you want to know what, what God is like? You look to Jesus. He is the Word become flesh, John 1.14, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, we see the same thing, that, that Christ Jesus is the Son who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So Christ Jesus, He is he's the form of God. In that he is God, and he also exhibits or presents or, or gives us the display of God and who God is. So if you want to know God, you look to Jesus. If you want to be more like God, you make yourself more like Jesus. And that's why we talk about being conformed to his image and to his likeness and being transformed and conformed in the renewing of our mind. That we would be more like Christ. And there's another profound truth in this verse. So not only is Jesus the one and very same essence or, or form of God, but it is also said that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held onto. And here we have the next word in our passage that needs uh, some more attention. What does, what does Paul mean when he says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? This is another phrase that has perplexed so many people. Partly because this whole phrase of, of a thing to be grasped is a, is a translation of just one Greek word. And it's a Greek word that only shows up once. It only shows up here. In the entire New Testament. So what can we make of this word or, or this phrase? And it's always important when we're, we're studying Scripture. One of the rules of interpretation is that we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And this is what we must do here. When there's a verse or a phrase that's more difficult to understand in one place, we go to other places where it is clearer. Where scripture is, is more plain, where it's easier and more straightforward in its meaning. This helps us to avoid certain pitfalls and certain dangers. And this phrase has some of those potential dangers. One dangerous assertion is that what Paul meant here is that Jesus, in some sense, at some point in his life, did not have equality with God. And so he was reaching out to grab it and to grab hold of it. Or at least he could have, but he did not. But this is certainly not true. We've seen it already in the very previous word and phrase that he was in the exact form, imprint, nature, essence of God. And everywhere in scripture that details and that gives us an account 
of Jesus' divinity. No, he was certainly equal with God, always. So if that's not the meaning, then what else could it be? Another danger in thinking this way is that while Jesus was equal with God, that he somehow gave up some of, her, some of his divinity. And that is what Paul meant by not grasping the equality with God, that he, he gave it up. This reading will also not suffice us. This is also not what Paul meant here. We'll get to more of that as we get to the next verse. But rather, what we must say here is that Jesus was and he is equal with God. But he never regarded this equality as a means of serving himself or of self-gain. Or as a thing that he could grab hold of to exploit to his own advantage. Christ's divinity, his equality with God, the fact that he is God incarnate was a level of status that gave him the right to demand worship and glory and honor of everyone he had ever come across. Every person he ever met, he had a right to claim his authority over them, to claim their worship and glory of him. In fact, that was what he was tempted to do in the desert. But rather, Mark 10, 45 tells us that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. As one pastor puts it, he says, Christ did not regard his uh, equality with the Father as a pretext for grasping, but as a platform for giving. And this is the example of Christ the King. Mark Mark in his gospel, he finishes that verse by, by saying the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that leads us to the next part of the story of Christ the King. We've seen his pre-existing glory, that he was always a co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. But now we see uh, the humiliation of the King, his humbling in verses 7 and 8. Many times, and you'll, you might have heard it before, but we sometimes refer to uh, this uh, part of, of Christ's uh, life and his ministry as, as his humiliation. And what we mean by that is not uh, in the sense of, of uh, suffering uh, or a reason for embarrassment after, after losing a game or after, uh, after uh, performing uh, poorly. That's not what we're talking about. Rather, we're talking about how he was, he was humble. He was reduced in his status and in his position relative to what it was before. He humbled himself from his previous status, from his previous state of, of glory, and he humbled himself to a lower state. This is what Paul says here, that Christ, who is equal to God and of the same essence and form of God, then he uses that same word form, and he says he took on the form of a servant. And being found in human form, he, he says again that he humbled himself through obedience even unto death, even the death on the cross. So he says in verse 7, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That is how Christ, he humbled himself. And here again, 
If you're keeping a list, this is our third word now that we need to pay close attention to. How should we understand the phrase emptied himself? In what sense did he become empty? What did he empty himself of? Was something that was there before removed from him? We touched on this briefly in the previous point, that Jesus did not give up his divinity. Say that again, he did not give up his divinity. Perhaps you've heard it said, or perhaps you've heard it taught before, that when the Son of God became incarnate, he took on flesh as the, as the person of Jesus Christ, that he, in some way, emptied himself of his divine attributes. That he, in some sense, ceased to be all-knowing or all-powerful. That he let go or emptied himself of of some part of his divinity. This is not biblical. This is not what we confess. This is not what we believe. This kind of theology really developed in the 19th century. It's called kenotic or kenotic theology from the Greek word here that Paul uses, kenosis, which is the word for empty. But this theology, it misunderstands, first of all, how Paul's using this word. Misunderstands how he's, how he's using this word here, and now Paul uses that word in the four other places that he uses it in the New Testament. Not to mention the fact that it gets our Christology completely wrong. Remember, Scripture must interpret Scripture. So the question, what did Christ empty himself of? That's the wrong question to be asking. Rather, Paul's point is that Christ himself was emptied of his transcendent, radiant glory and power. Christ appeared on earth, not at the sound of the trumpet blast, arrayed as a king ready for battle, but he was born of the Virgin Mary. Unassuming, uninteresting. There were no parades that received the coming of the King of Kings. But he came humble like a servant, just as the prophet Isaiah said he would when he said that he had no form or majesty that we should look on him. There was no beauty that we should desire him. What does Christ Jesus look like? Well, we shouldn't consider that question too much. We shouldn't try to paint a picture of him in our minds. But we can simply say that he came and he looked like us. <laughs> Unassuming. There is no beauty that one should desire him. But in no way, in no sense... Did the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, subtract or empty himself or lose any of his deity, any of his divinity, any of his divine qualities, but rather the beauty and the wonder, the majesty of the Incarnation, is that God took on flesh. There was no subtraction, there was only addition. And now this, this God-man continues to have these two natures, both God and man, perfectly in one person of Jesus Christ. 
Paul goes on, he, he says he was born in the likeness of man, that he, he took on human form. And this is what Paul meant in verse 6, that uh, Jesus in the form and essence of God, the same meaning is here, that Jesus is in the form and essence of us, of humanity. And so Christ Jesus then, he's, he's both fully God and fully man, in every way made like us. In our suffering, he grew thirsty, he was tired. He suffered and, and experienced heartaches and pains and tears and cold nights and lost loved ones. All of it, in every way, like us, yet without sin. And why did he become man? He came to earth to die for the forgiveness of our sins. And not just any death, but the death on the cross. That humiliating death. Crucifying. That's where we get that word. Excruciating, painful death on the cross. The death that was reserved for the worst criminals. The king of kings willingly took that road. Carried his cross to die that death. That he might identify with the lowest of the low. That he might be the savior of sinners. And so if you've not given your life to Christ, oh man, this is what Christ has done for you. Christ is here for you. To come to Christ. For those who have given their lives to Christ, if we, as we profess our faith in Him, will we still be concerned about what others think of us? Will we still continue to be so proud and self-serving, looking to our own interests above, above others. But consider the height from which Christ descended and consider the cross that he took up. Lay aside all pride. Come, bring yourself humbly to the cross. Finally, with every great story, there is the triumphant conclusion. And so finally, we, we get to his exaltation, verses 9 through 11, where he is crowned the king of kings. He is highly exalted. His name is above every name. So how was Christ the king? How was he exalted? Well, let's consider the ways uh, that he is exalted. Consider these ways with me. The first thing when we consider Christ's exaltation, as we consider, first of all, the truth of the resurrection. Death could not hold him. The grave is rendered powerless by his might. The tomb is empty. The resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, is at the very heart of our Christian religion. Without the resurrection, we have nothing. Paul tells the Corinthians this very same thing, that this doctrine and the truth of Christ's resurrection and his power, he says that it's what he delivered to them of first importance. Of first importance. Because if Christ had not been raised, then all of this has been in vain. Our faith is in vain. Our preaching is in vain. What I'm doing right here is in vain. There are plenty of other things I would rather be doing if Christ had not been raised. But the fact that Christ has been raised... 
Now I have to proclaim that truth to you. That's what I've been called to do and I have no other choice. Because Christ has been raised. This is the truth of the resurrection. Because it is true, we can gather together now confidently with certainty and hope that every promise that Christ has given to us will come true and is true. And this is why we do not grieve as those without hope. Because Christ is our hope. And it is okay to grieve. We can grieve because this world is not the way it should have been. Sin and death entered the world. It's not the way God created it. And death held power over us. No one was able to defeat it. Remember that? Do you know that? Before Christ came. No one was able to defeat death, but Christ the King came. He defeated death, and He defeated the grave. And He rose again on the third day. And like the triumphant warrior king returning from successful conquest, Christ is highly exalted. His victory was total and complete. And if we are His people, then we can rejoice in the safety of His kingdom. He was exalted in his resurrection. Then after visiting with his, his disciples and many others, Christ was exalted in his ascension up to heaven. And there, Christ the King was exalted, exalted again by being seated in authority, seated at God's right hand. There he not only reigns and rules, but he intercedes for us, for his people. He does all of these things. There's nothing more comforting than the fact that Christ, who is our good shepherd, is also our king. The king fights for his people. He rules and reigns over us. He protects us. Nothing happens outside of his perfect will. So if Jesus is your king, then that is good news. He's not going to let anything happen to you. And that doesn't mean that our lives go perfectly according to our plan. And that's actually a good thing because our plans aren't that good to begin with. But even in the pain and even in the suffering, we know that Christ is at work in us. And we know that he has what's best for us because he's given himself to us. He is highly exalted. His name is above every name. And there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. So believe in Jesus. And he will, at the end, part of his exaltation is that he will come again. On that day, one way or the other, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so what a privilege it is, what a grace it is to bow the knee to Christ now, to confess his name now, that he is the king of glory. And yet, this king of glory is gentle and lowly of heart. He is meek. He is tender, yet he is radiant and he is powerful. There is no God 
like our God. And the world owes its allegiance to him. And so all will bend the knee to Christ. But as long as the Lord tarries in heaven, he bids all who are weary, all you who are weary and heavy laden, to come unto him and find rest for your souls. For those who are in Christ, these words should be of great comfort to us, that we belong to the King of Kings. But for those who have not yet, who have not yet bent the knee to Christ, for those who have not yet professed his name, then this is the loving biblical warning to you. And the, the promise and the offer of the gospel that you would believe. You will believe in his name on the day when he returns. So would you believe it today? So that today you might enter his rest, receive the forgiveness of your sins, and have life abundantly and life everlasting. He extends that offer to you. Christ the King is powerful to save. He is able to save to the uttermost. All who come to him, he will never cast out. And that is the story of Christ the King. But where does that leave us? Like every great story, it leaves us with several things to consider. And certainly it leaves us considering all that Christ has done, all that he is, all that he continues to do. But as we close, and we'll close with this, look back at the beginning of our passage in verse 5. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is presently yours in Christ Jesus. And here I'm going to begin sounding like a broken record, saying the same thing week by week. But we have to understand this, church. We have to know this. That if we are in Christ, then all of the benefits of Christ are ours now. That Christ is available to you in His fullness, and all His benefits are available to you here and now. And we ought to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours. In Christ Jesus. It's not something that we need to go out in search of. It's not a, a, a mission or a quest for, to find some, some holy grail. But rather, it is accepting what has been given to us. And then working out that reality in our lives as God himself is working in us to do that. That's the passage. That's the sermon for next week. Cody's going to unpack that for us in much more detail. But for today, remember who Christ is. Consider his example. Make sure to remember that you, uh, that, you, and that you know that he is yours right here and that you are his right now. Remember that. Consider the example of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, from before time began, before you created time, in fact, you were... You're co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and Spirit. Yet you did not count your equality with the Father a reason for personal gain, but you humbled yourself, you took on flesh, and you became one of us in order to save us. While we were your enemies, you died for us, and truly you are highly exalted. Your name is above every name. 
We thank you for giving us the faith to believe in your mighty name. And may our lives reflect your perfect example. May we seek to serve others and not to be served. In all that we do, may your name be honored in our lives. And we pray all of this in your great name. Amen.